0: All right, the perfect law. Let's pray, and then we'll begin. Lord, I pray that you give me understanding of your word, all of us. Lord, that I might be spirit-filled as a teacher. And Lord, that you might convict hearts. Lord, those that are outside your family that are pretending, and those that are in your family that have become forgetful hearers. Lord, that we might be found obedient, faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. The study in in James we've called authentic faith, authentic Christianity. Now, James was dealing, like all pastors do, with a mixed multitude. When Moses came out of Egypt, he came out with a mixed multitude. And we see through the trials that there were many there that really didn't believe. They were going along. They saw the miracles. They enjoyed the blessing and the provisions, but they were not really believers, and when Push came to shove, the rebellion came out, and God had to deal with them, very harshly in some cases. So we look this morning at this passage, the perfect law. What is the perfect law? It's the gospel. But there were some in this congregation that, in all these congregations that he's writing to, that they're just hearers. They're not actually doers. They don't have saving faith. And even some that have saving faith have come to the place where they're just kind of going along. John wrote in 1 John 2.19 to explain why some go out. He said, they went out from us because they were not part of us. If they had been part of us, no doubt they would have remained with us, but they went out to show that they were not part of us. There's always a separation going on. And the separation comes because of the Word, the Word of God. James wants those that don't really know the truth to look into the mirror of the gospel, of the Word of God, and see their lost condition. That's what happens. The first mark of saving grace is realizing we're lost, without hope, apart from Christ. The second part is the gift of God that gives us the hope, that gives us the faith to trust the Lord Jesus and his finished work on the cross. Romans 6.23, 6, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Whether it's Paul or John or James these epistles are always written, and there's these parts in them we can look into the mirror and say, wow, that's not in my life. And if we're a believer, our spirit bear, bears witness with the word of God. It says, but I want that in my life. If you're not a believer, you say, that's not important. And you go away, and you become a forgetful hearer. But he begins here in verse 22, and He says, Prove yourselves, but prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. How do hearers delude themselves? They say, well, it's not important. How come? Because they decided. Because you decide, does something make it truth or not truth? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. But people that hear the word and go away from it and say, I'm good, are fooling themselves that everything's going to be okay. Well, I've made it this far. I'm okay. Maybe you grew up in a certain religion, and you've put so much time into that religion, and your family's that religion, and you say, well, yeah, I don't need to change horses, this, this, this part. It'll, it'll all turn out all right. It'll all come out in the wash. The Bible says it's not true. It's imperative that you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and there's two main points that James is going to get across. Number one, a personal relationship, and secondly, personal responsibility. For if any is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man that looks at himself in a mirror, and after he looks at himself, he goes away, and immediately he forgets what kind of person he was. That's a forgetful hearer. You just give a nod to God. You might even say, well, the Bible's truth. Yeah, that's that's truth. But the proof of your faith is if you internalize that word, if you feed upon that word, if that's a priority for your life. Gennemiah, prove yourselves is to be continually or keep on striving to be, and then doers is poete, it carries the character characterization of the whole personality of all a person's inner being, mind, soul, spirit, and emotions. And he uses the example, the writer here, I think it was Weist, uses the illustration of it's one thing to be, fight for a few, de- few days or a few weeks in an armed conflict. It's something else to be a professional soldier whose whole life is dedicated to warfare. Paul wrote about that in 1 Timothy 2.4. He said, he that wars does not entangle himself with the affairs of his life. We're not characterized as true believers when we say the Bible says something. We say, well, that's nice. Rather, we submit to it. We looked at that last week. We come to the word in humility, not to judge the word, but allow the word to judge us. And it says, but one who looks intently at the perfect law, and it has the idea of somebody that gets down close and looks and examines and abides by it. Not having become a forgetful hearer, which kind of teaches us that we can kind of begin, as true believers, to take the Word of God for granted and become what my dad used to call, yeah, but Christians. We say, he'd give us some instruction, and maybe we didn't like it, but we didn't want to say no, so we say, well, yeah, but Dad. People that come to the Word of God, and they see the Word of God, and they see what it says, they understand what yeah, but, and they try to throw their circumstance or maybe their culture yeah, but our culture. Yeah, but my opportunity. Yeah, but my job. Yeah, but our government. They don't allow you to share Christ just any time you want. Yeah, but see, the reason I allow this sin in my life is because you know, I want to identify with people and well, I want to enjoy life a little bit. You got to have a little sin to enjoy life and so they have a way of just distancing themselves from the Word of God, even true believers. What James in his heart, just like his half-brother, older brother Jesus, was trying to do, say, look at the Word of God and see if there's truth there or if it's just you. Because there's a gospel being preached today that says, here, say these magic words. People even lead you in the magic words, and then you're in. And then as long as you hang around those people, everything's good. But as soon as you get away from those people, then you start acting like the people you're around again. Well, here's some news. You probably didn't get new life. Maybe you got a new religion, but you didn't get new life. Because even though a believer may fall, his life is not dependent upon those around him is dependent upon the personal relationship he has with Christ. Now, a believer looks in the mirror of God's word and he sees two things. He sees, first of all, himself as God sees him. He sees himself like Amazing Grace says, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a what? A wretch like me. And even after you've been saved a while, you realize that's the truth. Paul called himself the chief of sinners. The chief of sinners. He never looked at his salvation like, wow, look at what a great deal God got when he saved me. I'll bet he's really happy he got me. I mean, look at all I do for him. I make a lot of money. I'm a famous personality. I'm a great athlete. You know, you know, pretty good deal. I mean... The Apostle Paul, as a mature believer, I think, wrote Romans 7, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will be able to deliver me from the body of this death? Why? Because those things I know I'm not supposed to do, I trip, stumble, and find myself sinning. Those things I'm supposed to be getting done faithfully, I don't accomplish those things. And I'm so thankful he came to the next chapter and he said, Therefore in spite of me, there is now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. That's the difference. It's the gospel. We see two things. The mirror of God's word shows us exactly where we're at. And even as believers, we may not know some things. That's what the Bible says. Evangelism is not just getting people to say a prayer. That's not the whole of of evangelism. The whole of evangelism is discipleship. Jesus said, Go into all the world, make disciples, baptize them, and then what? Teach them to observe all things I've commanded. So as a believer, you may be a new believer, and you've not been grown up in church, and maybe you know a whole lot, and so you're still having some struggles, but you come to the Word of God, and it's like, oh, wow, I didn't know that. But what do you do? You say, I want that. Why? Because just like a newborn baby has a desire for mother's milk, God has placed that DNA in you, spiritual DNA for his word. Now, your body physically needs minerals, right? But you don't go around chewing on rocks. That won't help you. You have to eat things that your body can assimilate. And what God created our new lives in him to assimilate is the word of God. Not just the, the parts that feel good to you. Not just the parts that affirm you. You know, I, I wonder, some people are always looking for an easier and easier translation, and so pretty soon they don't have the word. They just have somebody else's idea. You know, good news for modern man. Some good things in there, but it's a paraphrase. The believer wants a translation, be it King James, New King James, NIV, NASB, ESV, a translation. People want to make things easier and easier. So we have songs, and they, well, we don't want to sing the old hymns. Why? Well, they're too hard for people to understand. But you know, the thing about some of those old hymns, are such good doctrine in them. And so what do we do? Well, we learn them. It's like your child, you know, when, when we were little, we read Dick and Jane books. Run, Jane, Run, See Sally, See the Dog. But now we can read a little better than that, right? Because we've matured. Our mind can take in a little bit more. Some churches do 7 Eleven songs. You know what that is? Seven words, eleven times. It's like after the third time, I'm thinking to myself, I'm not stupid. I get it. Right? But as churches, we want to be feeding people not just milk, but meat. So if you don't understand something, that's fine. But you know, that's what small groups are about, too. Do you know that? So many people are afraid of getting a small group because they think it's a contest. They really do. They think, if I go to small group, I won't know very much and I'll look stupid. <laughs> no, that's not small group. That might be a kind of small group you're heard of. That's not what the Bible talks about in discipleship. In fact, one of the great joys of my life is going to small group and there's a new believer and say, guys, did you see this? And we don't say... You know, you are, so, you are so stupid. I can't believe you didn't know that already. No, we rejoice. Just like when your children, first hold, they, they pull themselves up and they're walking around stuff and then they, they fall and then pretty soon they're walking and then they're running and then mom's in trouble, right? We rejoice. That's great joy. When they begin to latch on or they say, hey, guys, I don't get this part. What is the Lord saying here? Another great joy is the fact that even if you've been saved a while, you're still growing, and that's great joy in your life. You come to one of Jesus' parables, and he says something, and you say, well, yeah, this is what I heard it meant. But it ain't really. You're like, you know, I guess that's just what I heard. And then somebody, because the Holy Spirit is in each one of you in the group, says, hey, have you ever thought about this? And all of a sudden, that passage opens up. Why? Because the anointing you've received, because you really have the Holy Spirit, you can understand his word. He uses trials to open it up. He uses study, and he uses maturity. And you begin to understand more of God's word. But you're not afraid of seeing who you are. As a husband, you come to the word. You say, well, I know what I'm supposed to do as a husband. I'm supposed to love my wife, right? But then you come to the Word and you memorize the passage, Ephesians 5, about verse 22. Husbands, you love your wives as much as Jesus loves the church. And you look into that mirror and you see the way you love your wife, and it's not up to standard, is it? You don't need a lot of marriage counseling for that. You have the counsel of the Holy Spirit that says, you know, you need to learn to answer this way. Hey, why don't you start doing some things to help her, right? The Holy Spirit does that. He speaks to you. Because you look into the mirror of God's Word, you're not afraid of that. You just don't say, oh, well, that's fine. You don't look into the God's Word to be affirmed. Oh, yeah, I'm a human. You look into God's Word so that you might be more like Christ. There's something amazing about God's Word, it's alive. To the person that's alive in Christ, it's alive, and you not only see where you fall short, but you see the goal, Jesus Christ. This powerful passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, it says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. That's the effect the Word has on somebody that gets down and looks into the gospel. When you see the Word of God, the gospel part that's a blessing is realizing that, God, I can't do this on my own because you have fulfilled the law for me. I have that power dwelling in me. That grace that I can be found obedient. But here's the deal you still, you've been set free from sin. That's why it's the law of liberty. You've been set free from sin. You still, there's a decide, decide you have to decide, Lord, I want that. I want to be like Christ. Now, it's naturally in there, supernaturally in there, as a believer, if you're a true believer. But as you look at the mirror and you say, I I don't really care what God's Word says. Be honest with yourself. You don't have to raise your hand and say, Pastor, I just want to tell you this morning I don't agree with what God says. You don't have to do that. But be honest in your life, in your heart, and say, I don't really like the message. I want to tell you, you can still be a true believer and not be comfortable about the message because the Word of God is not comfortable. But the problem is there are so many people, they've said a prayer, they're coming along, they come on Sunday morning, but that's it. The Lord... Stay out of my life otherwise. Oh, they would never say that, but that's what they're living like. Sundays is what you got, Lord. See what you can do with that. The nod to God crowd. I'm going to love my husband, he's really all into this thing. My wife, she's really into this thing, but you know, that's a forgetful here. That's a forgetful looker. They just glance. That's enough, Lord but they go away and they forget what kind of person they are. The opposite is the one who's trusted Christ, that has a relationship with Christ. And because of that, there's spiritual DNA that gives you a hunger to be like Christ. Now, it's called the law of liberty, and I love this because I, I was memorizing and, and, and pondering upon this passage this week. I think, well, what's the definition? Where can we get a biblical definition Romans chapter 8, beginning of verse 1. Even though you look in the mirror and you see that God is still working on you and there's still problems, you have to remember, because of the perfect law of liberty, there is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. And here's, here's the reason. Because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. That's why it's the perfect law. It's the law completed. Jesus fulfilled it for you. And he gives you that life. You see, salvation isn't a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's new life in Christ. And that new life is that spiritual DNA that gives you the hunger, the desire to be like him so that you become a reflection of his grace, of his glory, of his holiness in this world. He goes on to say, for the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. See, the old law, the whole purpose of the old law was to condemn you. That's the whole purpose. So you could see you were lost. That's the whole purpose. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did in sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So that the requirement of the law might be filled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. I love this, verse 6. For the mindset in the flesh is death. If you're full of flesh and you're just, you're, just you're, you're, you're trying to be smart, you're trying to be a little particular, hey, listen, I don't want to do those bad sins, but, but I don't need to be all crazy and fanatic, and become a Christian like my mom or dad, or my husband, my wife, that the other guy. I'll just go to church. You got Sunday, Lord. I don't need small group. I'm good without it. That always blows my mind. The people just come, they sit on Sunday morning, and then that's all they need the rest of the week. Because I'm telling you, by the time Tuesday comes around already, I'm needing the fellowship of my brothers. I need to be in prayer with them. I need them to help me carry my load. I need to see what God's doing in their life. And Peter writes in 2 Peter, and he says, listen, make sure your election in Christ. Don't go to the Word to be affirmed. Don't say, oh, I'm okay, because, you know, I I glanced the other day. Yeah, I'm, I'm a human. But he said, if these perfections aren't growing in you, if you're not, your desire for Christ isn't growing, then one of two things. Either you need some eye salve because your eyesight is getting myopic and you're, you're just losing your ability to see clearly because of sin, or you were never saved. That was just that religious thing you did. Now, I can't tell that in your life. J. Vernon McGee said, in life, the sons of God and the sons of Satan are always passing themselves, going back to their home. Sometimes Christians fall into sin, but the Bible says the righteous man falls down he gets up seven times. He can't stay there. He can't live that lifestyle. He just can't stay there anymore. Why? Because he has new life. When I was working on Lynn's dad's ranch, the Buffalo Creek, we had a bunch of sheep that got into some mud. And we'd been working cattle all day long. and We found those stupid sheep in this slime pit. And somebody had the bright idea, probably the guy who owned the sheep. We should pull those sheep out and shear them. Oh, man, that mud up there, a lot of bentonite, it was just slime. But you know what? We got those sheep out, and they died anyway. Sheep can't hang out in the mud for very long. Now, a pig, oh, man, that is his glory. You can clean a pig up. You can put him in, in the house. You can put a bowl around him, put some perfume on him. But first of a chance he gets on a hot day, he's finding a mud hole. He's going there. That's his nature. So while the sons of Satan might try out church for a while, but eventually John said they're going to go back. And I think Jesus gave us that in the sower and the seeds with the different kinds of soil. And Paul talked about it. Peter talked about it. James is talking about it here so that people can wake up and say, you know what, I don't think I really have Christ. Or believers can say, wow, I'm starting to look like the world. What am I doing? And they can adjust their path. That's what the Word does. The real believer looks into God's mirror. He looks into his word, and he says, oh, man, I got, I got some washing to do. And if you're honest with God, you say, you know, what happened? I used to have an appetite for the word of God. Then you can go to God and say this. It's called confession. Lord, I know this is no surprise to you, but I don't have any appetite for your word. Some of us don't get that honest. That's what confession is it's agreeing with God about our condition. I don't have any appetite. And the psalmist wrote in Psalm 51 Lord, create a new heart within me. Wash me with hyssop, and then I'll be clean. And then I'll be able to tell people of your great salvation. You know, have a desire to share Christ? The Bible says that's one of the marks of a believer. Doesn't mean you're not saved. But maybe you need some cleansing. And the Lord and say, Lord, I don't. I'm looking at your word, and I I don't have these appetites, Lord. You create your heart within me, Lord. Give me your desires again. Do what it takes that I can be close, that I can feel the joy of my salvation. I love this verse six. For the mindset in the flesh is death. But the mindset and the spirit is life and peace, and peace. You didn't get saved just so you can die, die and go to heaven. You got saved that you can be filled with the spirit and be salt and light on this earth and make a difference in people's lives by making them thirsty for the word of God, giving them direction to find Christ because you're there reflecting Christ's grace. And he goes on and he says, but if any of you seem to be religious and you don't bridle your tongue, he comes back to practical again, doesn't he? See, because there's personal relationship. If you have a personal relationship with Christ, you desire his word. And if you're a new believer, you say, okay, what does the Lord want me to do? That's a good question. What does the Lord want me to do? And if the Lord would just write out, the plan for the next 10 years, I could get busy on that. But that's not how the Lord works, is it? He wants to walk with us day by day, moment by moment. But he gives us some of these things. It's been a blessing to watch people come to Christ, guys especially come to Christ. Their language is horrible. It's not that they can't speak English, they just don't like English that much, I guess. And they throw all these other words in there to bring color Pretty soon you begin to think, we need to use some different words, and they don't know that. Maybe they're taking the Lord's name in vain. That's the way they've been doing all their life. And then they read in the Bible, God will not hold him guiltless who takes my name in vain. And they're a believer, and they go, whoa, okay, that's out. They might slip once in a while, and the other colorful language might maintain a little bit, but then they come to Ephesians, and it says, hey, you don't need to use that vulgar language. That's not what a Christian does. And They say, oh, Lord, help me clean up my language. How does the Lord do that from the inside? And pretty soon, you get angry and you think that word, right? And the Lord goes, say what? Because that's how God does it, isn't it? His spirit bears with him your spirit because you've been his word and you see what he wants, And you learn how to bridle your tongue. Now, bridling your tongue isn't just not talking. A bridle on a horse is not just for stopping, is it? It's control. It's control. We had a horse when I was in the Army called Johnny Mac. And he was a good-looking, big, strong horse, but I hated riding Johnny Mac. Especially in the cemetery, where everything's supposed to be in the full honor stuff is supposed to be under control, and Johnny Mac was always just throwing his head, and you would just be tired. You only could use your left arm because you had to salute with this one. So Johnny Mac, the whole time is like this: Is that what you are with the Lord, Caleb? Lord, I'll do what you say, but I, uh, uh. and if you just let Johnny Mac have his head, poof, he'd be gone. I had my horse, Cece. Cece was a Tennessee walker, and Cece, you just held him like this. And you didn't really have to use the bit. You just had to lean this way or that way and put a knee here or there. And He was a joy. We've gone through Hebrews, and one of the things that's so powerful in Hebrews 11 that talks about faithful people, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Control, Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Don't you love it when Jesus, they think they had Jesus in a corner and then he just gave them these words and they just had to shut up. Sometimes they even said, Lord, that's a great answer. (laughs) We got nothing to say. He silenced their mouth. We come at it with strength of personality and volume and anger. Jesus came with the sword of the Spirit, a scalpel. He spoke the truth in love. Because he wasn't just trying to win the argument. He was trying to get them to see themselves and turn and follow him. But if you are a person given a religion, but you can't bridle your tongue, no matter what your religion is, and the idea of religion here is not Christianity. He's saying there's a lot of people out that have religion. It could be pagan religion. In fact, this word is never used about Christianity, but it's just about religion, about the forms and going to services and doing all religious things. And you see somebody that's very religious, but they can't bridle their tongue this man's religious is worthless. Why? Because it doesn't affect his heart. It doesn't affect his attitudes. It doesn't affect his speech. It doesn't affect, it doesn't control. He may have a bit in his mouth, but it doesn't do anything. We as believers, we have the Spirit of God. And even it says, though, they understood that Jesus disciples after he we went back to heaven were unlearned men they take they took note that they had been with who Jesus why because it affected their actions their attitude their speech it said pure religion undefiled before our God and Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their distress see this is Personal holiness. Personal holiness. It's not to say, hey, does the church have the program for orphans and widows? I'd like to give to that. You know, we had a great idea, and, and I think that it was it was, a, it was a noble idea. Maybe if we had a campus on the other side of town, right there at the corner by the fire station, West Laramie, it'd be an opportunity to reach out to one of the poorer schools, public schools, and be able to reach people, may have some services there, feed kids, and then all of a sudden that opportunity just disappeared. And, and I don't think it was that we were, we were you know, it was, it was a wrong idea necessarily. But see, God's not just looking for good. He's looking for best for us. He's not just looking for us to create a program. See, we're such program people. We want the government to do stuff for us. We think the church should be doing certain things. Guys have called me. My friends have called me. Say, hey, I got this guy here, and he needs 30 bucks. You know, I was just wondering if the church said, you got 30 bucks? Yeah. Give it to him. You, reach in your pocket. If God told you to, to reach out to this guy, then just give it to him. You see some people that are hurting. Maybe their dad just died. Their husband passed away. You say, I don't even know them. But the Lord puts it in your heart. You should go over and talk to them. They're hurting right now. I, say, I don't know what to say. Let me call the pastor. Well, I'm always glad to bring the word, but God put that on your heart. He's not talking about church programs here. He's talking about us in our heart, bridling our tongue, Letting the Spirit control our greed, and having a heart of love and compassion like Jesus did to reach out and touch people personally, not just with a program. You know, people come by the church regularly, so the warmer the weather gets, the more people will have come by. And they just, in their minds, they're lost. They think it's a church's job to give them money. And often we do. And we're part of programs that help people down the highway. They Brown for a job in Seattle, and they're coming from New York, and they don't have any friends or family that care about them, and same story over and over again. And so what we try to do is sit down and say, well, listen, let me talk to you about the Lord for a little bit. Oh, yeah, I'm a good Christian. What church do you go to? Ah, um, you, uh, well, it's this church It's like, you know, what's your passion? Uh, they don't they don't have that. Because if you and I were on the road, and we got in trouble, we'd call one of us, wouldn't we? I would. i say, John Ehrenholtz, come and get me. I was going to New York and got stopped in Chicago. Come and get me. No, I'd, I'd have somebody a little closer than that, but we have a relationship. But when you begin to share, hold oh, on, I want that stuff. Just give me the money. Just give me the money. The thing about ministering to orphans and widows is you're not going to get anything back. It says in their distress, when they're hurting, bringing the love of Christ, and not just saying, be that warmed and filled. I see you're hurting. I'll be praying for you when you have something to be able to meet their need. The church stopped doing that. Or they got programmatic, and pretty soon the government took over, and we were glad to be relieved of that. And we live in a harsh and angry world today. Then it says, and to keep yourself unstained from the world. Say, Pastor, I was thinking about this. I remember, I said, why didn't you put holiness first? Because I mean, we'd be a lot better off in our ministry if we were holy first, because we'd all be sitting on weight. To minister wouldn't we well I'm not holy yet so I can't give my money I can't give my time because I'm not holy yet when in fact in the doing and carrying out of the things God puts in our path that's what he uses to purify our motives see being stained by the world isn't hanging around unsafe people Some people think that. They get cloistered. The churches just become cloistered. They all run in from the world, and they look out through the slots. That's really bad out there. That was accentuated with the whole Christian school movement. And with the homeschool movement, we don't want to be around unchristian people. I'm not saying that that's what you did. I'm saying that was an effect of it. And so we all got to have our own little places where we could only be around people that always agreed with only us. Got to agree 100%. Now, unstained by the world is buying into the world's philosophies and their values. Warren Wearsby said, The world wants to stain the Christian and start to defile him. First, there's friendship with the world, James 4 4, which can lead to love for the world, 1 John 215 15 through 17 if we are not careful, we would be conformed to the world. And the result is being condemned with the world. It doesn't suggest that we lose our salvation, but we lose all we have lived for. Those values and philosophies. You know, on the face of things, nothing wrong with sports, right? I mean, sports develops character. We hear all these things. But you know what? How many Christians now are buying in? But it's so important that my kid becomes a professional. So I need to skip church to take with that better programs so he can become all that he wants to do. And the Bible says, Jesus says this, what if a man gains the whole world and loses his soul? And you know what? Your kids know what's valuable to you. You live it out every day. You can tell them anything you want in your doctrinal statement, but your walk talks, and your walk talks louder than your talk talks. Maybe it's money, maybe it's things, and your kids find out. You break that. Woo! I think I've told you before, but I got so convicted because my oldest son is such a fix-it guy, and he's always fixing stuff. And By the time he was little, we were all watching TV one time, and he had got a bunch of old tape recorders or something, and we heard this poof, the smell of ozone, and the TV went off. And he came out with black over his eyebrows. So what's going on, PJ? Nothing. He's always fixing things, and he's still fixing things. He was a scientist in the making, but he used to take my tools and lose them and make me so angry. Guess who the big problem was? It wasn't PJ. It was Pablo. And one day, God convicted me. Really, Paul? Paul? Your tools are more important than that little guy? Nope. Gathered up all my tools, and I gave them to him. Here you go, man. Lose your own tools. He still lost them. I just didn't care anymore. They were his. Isn't God good how he leads us? He doesn't want us to have the values of the world. He doesn't want us to have their philosophies You got to do this, son. You got to take care of yourself, son. No, no, no. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I don't have to be afraid because the Lord is with me. Father, we thank you for the fact that you. You went to the cross for us. You provided the opportunity to partake of this great law of liberty, the gospel, because You paid the price. Oh, Lord, stir up our appetite for You. Lord, I pray as we come to the table now that you would help us to remember, as we look and remember what it costs to pay for our sin, and we allow the Holy Spirit to examine us now. Even though we have that position, we belong to you, Lord. Our feet get dirty; we need to wash our hands, Lord. We need to repent of some things, so Lord, I pray that you would convict us, Lord, and then grant us repentance, so we might come with clean hands. to so this special time of worship, we'll remember that all that we are, all that we have is because of Jesus in whose name we pray, amen.